Good morning, everybody doing okay? You guys good? Everyone's refreshed, had plenty of sleep last night. Hey, let's, let's, do an, let's do an exercise in honesty here for a second. How many of you are typically nine o'clockers, but you're here this morning? A bunch of you are liars. <laughs> a couple of honest people in the room. Okay, all right. I was making a joke last night at the Saturday services. I'm like, you know, every year when the time changes, you know, there's people who miss church or they show up at the wrong time. And once upon a time, you know, in the 1980s, before we all had cell phones and you had to set a normal clock, like that was kind of a passable reason to maybe be late or earlier or whatever the case may be, but your phone does it for you now. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. So anyways... Someone at home is feeling a lot of condemnation and judgment right now. Uh, we are working through the Gospel of John. Glad you're here this morning. We're kind of slowly working through this. We did a little bit of chapter five last week. We did some of chapter four, about half of chapter five. If you have not been here, this is a very unique book because it was written by one of the 12 disciples, written by one of the closest to Jesus of the 12 disciples. John, some argue that he was the closest um, to Jesus. It's just about the life of Jesus, about the ministry of Jesus, and um, kind of the birth of the church a little bit, which started with these 12 individuals, these 12 men. And where we are at in the story is in chapter 5, Jesus has performed kind of his third big public miracle, and he walks in. They're in Jerusalem. He walks up to a man who has not walked in 38 years, so more than likely his entire life up to that point he had never walked. And he was waiting by a pool, a pool called Bethesda in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. And the, the superstitious belief was that when this pool bubbles up, whoever gets in the pool first is healed of whatever ailment they have. It was not a, a, a real thing that happened. It was a superstitious belief. But this man, you know, was desperate and trying to get healed. So he waited by this pool. Jesus rolls up, has a couple of his disciples with him, finds the man, says, do you want to be healed? course, the answer is yes. And Jesus says, well, all right, get up, you're healed, walk. And um, that's all great. And that's all fine and good, except for the fact that Jesus did this work, this act on the Sabbath day when you were not allowed to work. So he upset the religious leaders who saw this all take place. And so Jesus, in beginning in, in kind of the, uh, the middle of chapter five, basically gives a sermon or a sermonette. It's very short to the religious leaders. And it's not a very friendly sermonette to the religious leaders. But one of the things that we talked about and we ended on last week was honor. Jesus says it's impossible for us to honor God the Father if we do not honor him, the Son. And so we talked about what does it mean to be honorable? Well, it means, of course, to, to think of God in the highest esteem. It also means that we model our life, how we live around God's principles and teachings. And then, of course, through that, we also treat others with love and respect, and that, that constitutes us being honorable people. This week, we're going to talk about something that we talk about a lot in this church, and uh, because I think it's, it's the prevailing kind of cancer of our society, if you will, right now, and it is this, this temptation that I think all of us struggle with to some degree, this temptation to follow ourselves versus following God, this temptation of self. Now, the problem with giving into the temptation to follow self is it has never worked. It has never worked on a macro level. It has never worked on a micro level. And so the bottom line that we're gonna talk about today is we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so we're gonna talk about this uh, 
a little bit today. You think it's weird you guys are the last 11 o'clock service we're gonna have, isn't that strange? Strange. You either have to move to 10 or 12, I'd like you to move to 12, but a uh, little passive aggressive suggestion there. So you should have got, <laughs> you should have got a note saying out when you walked in, everything I'm gonna talk about will be in there. Everything will be on uh, the screen behind me. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, click on sermon notes, you got everything right there. If you have a Bible, we're in the New Testament in the fourth book of the New Testament, fifth chapter, and we will start in verse 24, okay? So let me pray. What's neat today, every single word that I will read is straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, so that's kinda neat, red letters. So let me pray and um, we'll dive into this. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, I thank you for everyone here this morning. I thank you, God, um, for the opportunity to do and the, and the freedom to do uh, what we're doing right now, God. Lord, I pray that as we study the word and as we worship and eventually take communion and get prayer after this, that I pray that you just bless us, keep your hand on us. We don't just pray for our church though, Father, we pray for every single church in our city that is teaching the word. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities and we pray, Lord, that ultimately everything we do, that it brings us closer to you and honors you, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Some fun stuff in this half chapter, okay? This is what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but is passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my will, but the will of him who sent me. So, he is still addressing the angry religious people who are upset that he did a miracle on the wrong day of the week. Now, this chunk of the scripture, the second half of chapter five, focuses around the unity of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Because the tension is now with the religious people that, that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. He's claiming to be God, essentially. And verse 24 re like, like kind of reemphasizes this and assures us that if we, anyone, puts their trust in Jesus and the words of Jesus, that they will escape eternal death. Now, death there is not a literal death, that's a spiritual death. And so here's what we tend to do as humans. We are very, very good at this. We take very simple things and we are very good at convoluting and complicated, very, very simple ideas. In the Old Testament, God gave us 10 commandments. By the time mankind was done with it, we had over 600 that we had amended onto that. They were very simple 10 rules. That's, that's all we were to follow. Not a big deal, right? But we have to complicate it. When it comes to the New Testament, we do the same thing. 
And Christians argue, well, do I have to get baptized? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Well, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And what is love? And all these things. And basically the Bible simply says this, if we put our faith in Jesus and do what the Bible tells us to do, we're saved and we're changed. It is really that simple. It is not that complicated. The problem is, is that we always try to convolute such easy things. And so the first thing Jesus says here is he talks about a metaphorical resurrection. He's gonna talk about two resurrections. One is a spiritual resurrection, one is a physical resurrection. The first one we know is a metaphor or it's about the spirit because of what he says. He says, truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when everyone who hears my voice, who is dead, that they will live. Now we know that's talking about something other than the literal because if he was talking right, then you'd see people coming out of their graves, right? Dead people rising, but that didn't happen. He's talking about people who are spiritually dead. Whoever hears the word of God and responds to it will be made spiritually alive. And this is important because sometimes as Christians, we talk about eternity or we talk about heaven or we talk about salvation like it's something really, really far away from us. It's something we will eventually get to experience, but there is a certain amount of heaven that we get to experience right now. That when we give our lives to Christ, there is a change that happens right now. There is a resurrection now to where we are resurrected from our dead patterns. We are resurrected from our sinful nature and sinful lifestyle and we are given joy and peace and we get to experience true love and kind of get that little bit of heaven right now. Amen. We also hear Jesus refer to himself in two different ways. He calls himself the son of God and he calls himself the son of man. Now, the most simple way to explain this is son of God refers to the divinity side of Jesus. Son of man refers to the human side of Jesus. That Jesus is simultaneously 100% God and 100% human. The, the, the son of man part is even a little bit more in depth than that though. If we understand that Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human, that means that he had to humble himself and live like one of us. He fulfilled all prophecy by Jesus. Jesus was not created, he has always existed. In fact, everything was created through him, by him, for him. Humbled himself and that fulfills prophecy. It also, the title son of man does reflect his divinity. Do you know that Jesus is not the only one called the son of man in the Bible? Ezekiel is called the son of man. But it's with a lowercase s and a lowercase m. When Jesus is referred to as the son of man, it is capitalized because this human is also in fact God. Neat stuff. So he talks about the spiritual kind of metaphorical resurrection, but there will also be a literal physical resurrection. Every single human that has ever lived will die and every single human will be resurrected. And when we are resurrected, if we have done good things, Jesus says, we will be resurrected to eternal life, heaven. If we have done evil things, wicked things, as Jesus says, we will be resurrected to eternal separation from God, condemnation. Now, whenever we read that, we're like, whew, I am a good person, right? But by whose definition are we good people? This is the problem. We live in a very self-righteous culture. We'll talk about self-righteousness here in a second, which means that we all get to determine what is good and evil, but we do not have the right to determine what is good and evil. So some people say, well, that's true to me, but it may not be true to you. There is not multiple truths. 
There is one truth, there is one right and wrong. And you know who gets to set that? Not the creation, the creator. So we have to make sure when the Bible says do good things, that's good according to Christ. Not according to what Americanism tells you right now at the moment. So then we can say, okay, so we're all gonna be resurrected. And Jesus says that he will be the judge. Well, can I trust that Jesus is going to make a, a fair assessment of me? Well, no, Jesus is not fair. We cannot call Jesus fair. If Jesus were fair, we would all go to hell. Jesus is not fair, Jesus is righteous. And he loves us. And he assures us that yes, we are accountable for how we live, but he is a righteous, good judge. So again, we have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to this. If we are living the way the Bible tells us to live, if we have a relationship with Jesus, you have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to eternity or death. We have nothing to be afraid of. I remember in 2018, and it bled over into 2019, I taught Revelation for the, for the last time that I, I haven't taught it in four years or whatever. And we had multiple families leave our church because the book of Revelation scared them. And I'm like, man, if you're saved, this should not scare you. You should be anticipating this. This should excite us and encourage us. We, we should not be afraid of that. Because again, if we are praying and obeying the word, God's grace and his Holy Spirit sustains us as we anticipate. That's why John goes on to say, Lord, come quickly. Anyone else find themselves doing that every once in a while now, right? You watch the news for 10 minutes and you're like, Lord, come on, are you ready yet? Like, you wanna get out of here. And that's okay, I don't know why I went down that route. I'm sorry, let's get to the next part. <laughs> Those of you with teenage girls, you know exactly what I'm praying. Like, Lord, come on, real quick. Smite all these boys, okay. <laughs> I just heard a rumble of dads over here. <laughs> if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony. But I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me, and you have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one who he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So what Jesus is doing is this. He, he uses the word testify or testimony, unless I miscounted, I think 10 times, just in that little portion that I read. And what he's doing is, now listen, I'm, gonna, I'm not saying this to, to make Jesus sound like he's rude. Jesus does not need anyone to affirm who he is. He is, he is God. But what he is going to do, because he loves even these religious leaders who wanna kill him, as he says, look, I don't need man to vouch for me, but, but I'm gonna give you some evidence as to who I am in the hopes that you will believe, that you will be saved. So he's gonna give them four pieces of evidence. 
The first piece of evidence is John the Baptist. If you haven't been here, John the Baptist came before Jesus. He, he, he basically fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, Malachi chapter three, baptized so they think somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 plus people. And when Jesus rolled onto the scene, John said, this is the guy you're supposed to follow. This is the one I have been setting you up for. Now, anyone who knew the scripture and had an open mind and an open heart to what God was saying through the scripture should have recognized who John was and recognized who Jesus was, but they didn't. The religious leaders didn't take John the Baptist seriously because he didn't dress like them, because he didn't have the proper credentials and degrees like they had, so they neglected and, and rejected this prophet. And the prophet was pointing towards Christ. That was the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence should have been very, very vivid to them. Earlier on in chapter five, Jesus does a miracle right in front of the religious people. So the second piece of evidence, Jesus is saying, I am doing miraculous things that only God could do. This is the second very blatant piece of evidence that I am who I say I am. Now here's the thing, today we should not base our faith on miraculous signs. Jesus even says it's a very perverse group of people who are always looking for proof like that for a miraculous sign. But the miracles of the Bible do point to the character of Jesus. They point to the fact that he loves people and he wants them saved and he does want to heal. The, the miracles of Bible point to the message of salvation and the kingdom of God and that's, that's all good. But that's the second piece of evidence. The third piece of evidence, which quite frankly is the only one Jesus really cares about, is that God the Father is his, is, is his witness or testifies on his behalf. I love what Jesus says though. Jesus goes, but you haven't heard the Father. The way they heard the Father was through the Word. And these people knew the Word, but they didn't have the Word in their hearts. And because the Word of God was in their brains, but not in their hearts, they couldn't see that God was standing literally right in front of them. They said, because you haven't heard God through the word, you can't see God's form. He was referring to himself. And this brings us up to a huge problem with humans. And this goes against kind of our main theme of the Gospel of John. The main thing of the Gospel of John is, it's not that if we see, we will believe, it's that if we have a desire to believe, we will see. It's opposite. Because what has happened with humanity is we always say, well, if God would just show himself, I would believe. That's not true. It's happened multiple times throughout human history. In the Old Testament, the Jews are walking through the desert after walking through the Red Sea that was miraculously parted. Should have been enough evidence. Food falls from heaven, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke through the day. Their leader goes up on the mountain to get 10 commandments that God engraved in stone with his finger. And what do they do when he's gone? They worship another God that they created. And they saw God all over the place. Well, if I could just see him, I'd believe, not true. And then God comes down and walks around as a human, does miraculous things, speaks things that no one else has ever said before and tells the truth. And people go, well, I'm just not sold. And there are still some people today where if God walked through one of these double doors right now, we, we eh, I don't know, I'm not sure. It's not seen as believing because we have to have a desire to see the truth. The evidence of God is all around us. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one. He says the invisible attributes of God, the power of God, the divine nature of God is clearly seen 
Walk out and look at the night sky and see the moon and you can see Mars most of the time and Jupiter and Saturn and Venus. And to look around and see the order and the intricacy of the universe, that should lead anyone to believe to say that there is an architect of all this. This is not accidental. Look at the intricacies of the human body. Look, look at all the different complexities in the world. It's not that there is not evidence, it's that some people don't want to see the evidence. And I'm not telling you to be argumentative with your non-believing friends, I hope you have non-believing friends, but whenever people go, well, I don't believe this stuff in the Bible, my first response is always, so you've read it cover to cover? <laughs> Most Christians haven't even done that, let alone people who are not Christians. So whenever people go, well, I don't believe that, and I'm like, which part do you not believe, show me. But they, they've never done that, they've never looked and if one never looks, of course you're not going to see. The fourth, fourth piece of evidence, which I think is the funnest one and probably the most damning, is Jesus is talking to biblical scholars. And he says, the word is a piece of evidence that I am who I say I am. And he says that they poured over the scripture, but they still didn't recognize the, the, what the whole Old Testament was pointing towards. So here's the thing, if we, have, if, if we are looking for the truth, if we are asking the biggest questions, if you're in this room this morning, and I'm super glad you're in this room if this is where you're at, if you're asking the big questions like, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What happens after this life? If we have an open heart and an open eyes and open mind, eventually that will lead to an open Bible. If we are asking the biggest questions in life, no one who is genuinely asking the biggest questions can, can come to a conclusion without addressing this book. The very, the, the, the very way that we break up time is based around this book. BC, AD, right? Before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so it is impossible to seek out the truth unless one eventually goes into that book. But it has to go beyond just these written words. So again, Jesus said, I misspelled poured there. I didn't misspell the word poor. I just spelled it differently than what your Bible says, my fault. Jesus said the religious leaders, they pour over the scripture, but they've missed the whole point of the Bible. My buddy David Young has a, a, a PhD in divinity from Vanderbilt, and he'll be the first to tell you the majority of the students that come out of Vanderbilt's divinity school do not even believe in God. They are experts in that book. It is here, but they have missed the whole point of that book. The whole point of that book is to tell us about Christ so we can have a relationship with him and have eternal life with him. That book is a roadmap. It's a roadmap that points to Jesus and it's a roadmap that tells us how to have a relationship with Jesus. We do not worship this book. We do not worship the leather and the paper and mine has this fancy little gold trim on the edge of it. It doesn't, we don't worship that, but the knowledge contained in this book points us to the one that we are to worship. That makes this book invaluable and a very, very important book. But we have to want to see the truth. And that comes to our last part here. It's the most fun part. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his name, you'll accept him. Verse 44 is the linchpin. How can you believe since you accept the glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. 
because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? There's a lot in here. The first thing that I think is really, really fun is Jesus is giving a sermon to the most powerful religious people in all of Judaism. And he looks at the most powerful religious people and he says, you don't even love God. If you were watching that as a spectator, you would have been like, <gasps> right? That would have been a big deal and probably would have put you on the chopping block to be killed almost instantly. So the last part of this kind of, I'm gonna call it a sermonette that Jesus gives to the religious leaders is basically him condemning them because they are falsely accusing him and persecuting him. This is fun too. Do you know what the problem with the religious people was? The problem with the religious people is in their religion, it became really more about satisfying them than it was about satisfying God. How many people do we know go to church, give a little bit of money every once in a while, they check off some boxes, but it's really about just escaping hell and making sure that they get blessed a little bit along the way. It's not really about knowing who Jesus is. It's not really about building a relationship with him. It's not really about coming in and lifting him up. It's about what can I get out of this? See, we do the same things. We somehow think that we're more evolved than these bad people in the Bibles, but we, 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 we always, almost always fall to the same temptations, almost always. And we have to be careful that we prioritize our life correctly because if we don't, and if we put ourselves first, everything gets all out of whack, even church. This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else and then everything else is added to you. So what this comes back to is something that we talk about a lot in this church. It is the pursuit of self over the pursuit of God. Now we're gonna, we're gonna get into some serious business here in a second. Verse 43 and 44, Jesus is alluding to the fact that as time goes on, false teachers and false religions will pop up and a lot of people will gravitate towards those false teachers and towards those false religions. Why? Because in our selfishness, we don't wanna to come to church and be told what we're doing wrong. We wanna to come to church and have some guy affirm how we already live. Everybody awake out there? In the United States right now, there are even mainstream denominations that in the, in the pursuit of inclusivity and self, they have neglected the true word of God and they are loving people right into their eternal damnation. Now, when I say things like that, we're real quick to say, oh, I know what group of people he's talking about. The problem is this, when it comes to things like sexual sin, we have been turning a blind eye to sexual sin for decades. About one and a half percent of the population legitimately is homosexual or trans. And we love to say, man, those people, we are, we are doing a lot of inclusivity training in churches and we are turning a blind eye to the scripture when it comes to that. Do you know 95% of all Christians lose their virginity before they're married? Amen. How long have we been turning a blind eye to those passages? And then we wonder why we have ended up where we are? It's because when you don't address the cancer, it spreads and it mutates. And then one day we sit back and go, how did we get here? We got here because we talked about everyone else's sins except for ours. And what happens, what happens is 
You, you, you accidentally find your way into a church that actually teaches the Bible, some conviction happens and you go, what a bigoted, small-minded man that is up there. I'm gonna jump ship and I'm gonna go to this church down the street because they're not going to tell me how to live my life. I am not telling you how to live your life. The God of the universe that created you is trying to tell you how to live your life. And so, so hold on. There is this misconception that Christianity, the church and God are inclusive, that this is inclusivity. So we have given up good doctrine and theology at the altar of inclusivity in the United States. Do you know that Jesus is not inclusive? What I mean is this, there is a certain standard by which we must live to get into the kingdom of God. Inclusivity means you can do whatever you want and we accept everyone. Jesus longs to have everyone into the kingdom of God, but there is a way we must must live in order to get into that kingdom. So we have to be very, very cautious. So I'm, I'm trying to be more like Jesus and ask questions that I already know the answer to. But how has this infiltrated the, the, the church in the United States? It has infiltrated it on a mass scale, a massive scale. And so we should not be shocked by this either. We should not be shocked that the church in the United States is a complete dumpster fire. This should not shock us. We should also not say asinine, ridiculous things like we are one nation under God. We are not. We're under a God, but it's not the God. We're under the God of individual. And let me tell you, no one in the world not only puts out the filth that the United States does, but praises it and awards it like the United States. No one on earth does that. And again, this should not shock us. Why? Because Jesus said these things were going to happen. His disciples said, Christ, or they didn't call him Christ, but Lord, Jesus, before you come back, what are some things that are gonna happen? And in Matthew chapter 24, he gives them a laundry list of things that will happen before he returns. And one of those things is a great turning away from the faith. Paul echoes this in 2 Thessalonians. He calls it a great apostasy. Now, that doesn't mean just a blatant disregard of Jesus. Man, everyone likes Jesus, but they twist and bastardize and omit parts of the teachings of the word of God because we make a Jesus in our image that kind of fits with our American culture. That's what we do. So it's the way the devil works is very subtle. There's not a bunch of people out there going just, oh, deny Jesus. They're saying, come buy into this twisted version of Jesus that I've made that affirms everything I do. There are even pastors right now because we have bought into this whole love is love bull crap to where if love is love and two people of the same gender can do that and that's love, well, why is to say we can't introduce a third person? Polygamy, well, isn't that just more love added into the mix? So if we start to tear away one pillar, the whole thing eventually has to topple. But I'm gonna tell you before we get all judgy, that started with us neglecting our sexual sin decades and decades ago. And so it's not a blatant disregard for Jesus, it's just a twisting and an omitting of scripture. And this is the way the devil always works. This is the way the devil always works. But I'm gonna tell you what, if anyone, and I'm just gonna quote a passage from the Bible, if that's okay in church. What the Bible says is this, any other gospel, Paul said this, any other gospel that is presented to you other than the one that we have presented is a doctrine of demons, the Bible says. It is the devil at work. You know, I've learned saying things like that don't make you really popular. But over the years, I've gotten to a point to where I care much more about my eternal soul than I care about what you think of me. 
And that leads me to this slide. Now listen, I'm not perfect in this. You know, I'm a human too, and I also care how people think about me to a certain extent. But Jesus really hits it out of the park with this one. Where does it all come from? Verse 44 is the linchpin. He says, how can you possibly believe in me when you're more concerned about seeking glory from each other? In a society that is absolutely addicted to affirmation, we are addicted to it. We are so concerned what everyone is going to think about us that we will even give up on eternal principles in the name of making sure that people don't dislike me. But again, we as Christians, if we've ever read the Bible, should know that these things were coming. Jesus said, don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated me first. And if we live in a relationship with him, there will be some people who will hate our guts. But we live in a culture that is addicted to being liked. We live in a culture that is addicted to this. But as Christians, listen, the Bible says we're to have a good reputation with people around us. But first and foremost, we seek the approval of God. And sometimes that relationship with God will divide us from other people. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to, to bring all this unification. He says, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide the righteous from the unrighteous, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. So these religious leaders are sitting here hearing all this, and I love this too. Jesus says, well, I don't have to be the one to accuse you. Your own scripture that you love so much, the, the works of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, he goes, those do a pretty good job of accusing you. If you followed the 10 commandments out of a desire to know God more, Jesus is saying, you would see that God is standing right in front of you. Not only that, another one of the books that, that Moses contributed, Deuteronomy, it, it prophesies about the coming Messiah. So if they had been following the rules out of a desire to get closer to God, they would have seen that they were hearing the voice of God in that moment. And they should have been anticipating that and excited about it, but they weren't. So they had put all their hope, Jesus says, on the words of Moses. You can, you can kind of simplify, whenever the Bible says the law of Moses, you can basically simplify that to mean the 10 commandments. The, the Ten Commandments should not be done away with just because it's in the Old Testament. They are vitally important. But the Ten Commandments cannot save our soul. All the Ten Commandments do is, and this is a big, do, big deal, is they define what is right and wrong, and they also direct us to the fact that we need help. So when we read the Ten Commandments, even when we think we're doing really good at it, Jesus made it clear that we always fall short. Now listen, we should strive to live out the 10 commandments all the time, but, but also know that we need help in that because we can't do it on our own. So the 10 commandments define what is sin and what is not sin. And the 10 commandments say, you need help. And that's where Jesus comes in. So the 10 commandments are just pointing towards the fact that we need a savior. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He has kind of a dual role when it comes to, to, to our passing on into our eternity. Jesus says that he will be the judge and he's a righteous judge. Jesus will judge us, but Jesus, if we're Christians, will also be our defense attorney. So we will stand in front of Christ, the judge, knowing that we have fallen short. We did our best, we had a relationship with Jesus, but we were not perfect, we were not righteous all the way. But then Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy will stand in front of us and go, 
I proclaim that he is innocent. My blood has covered his mistakes. He is justified because he had a relationship with me. So Jesus is both the judge and the one that gets us off the hook, if you will. The defense attorney, he acts as both, and we are resurrected. But even before that resurrection, there is a resurrection now. (sighs) That if we will put our faith, our trust and hope in Jesus, man, he gives us life. Do Do you guys ever... You guys ever look at people sometimes or when you're out in the world and you see the, 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 I mean, sometimes the rat race and the frustration and the anger and the addiction and you look and you go, man, that is not living. That is not living. And it is in Jesus that we actually get to experience life now. This means that we are spiritually resurrected from our dead patterns. Resurrected from our dead patterns. And then when all of humanity is resurrected, we will be resurrected to eternal life. Now, this may be the most offensive thing I say today and the most offensive thing in the Bible. There is only one way to be resurrected to eternal life, only one. Only one, and that's very offensive. We live in what's called a pluralistic society that believes there are many spokes to the same source, and Jesus would say that's false. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is, Jesus said, there is no other pathway to the Father except through me. And this is a very offensive thing to say in our culture. Again, in the spirit of inclusivity and not offending anyone, that's a very offensive thing to say, but it is the truth. There is only one source of resurrection, and that is Christ. Our problem is, is that we are always drawn, all of us in this room, there is this temptation to be drawn to self, to what we want to do. Now listen, that doesn't mean that every single one of you in this room is just a selfish, awful person. This means that sometimes in life we we become afraid. And in that fear, we act in the temporary, forgetting about the eternal ramifications of that decision. Sometimes in a moment of weakness, we become lustful. We do something we shouldn't do and we forget the, the eternal and we just focus on the temporary satisfaction. Sometimes we get greedy, sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes out of, out of temporary issues, we forget about the ramifications of our decisions. Another thing that we do is we start to try to justify our sinful decisions and we create our own versions of right and wrong. Well, I don't believe that's wrong. Well, I don't really care what you believe. What does the Bible say about this action? Well, that's just not my truth. There is no your truth or my truth. There is just truth. There is no no completely subjective way of doing things that is contingent on my thoughts. What happens when we become self-righteous and we try to create our own good and bad system is it becomes hypocritical. It becomes contradictory. There cannot be 8 billion different definitions of good and evil. It doesn't make any sense. And it becomes chaos. Why? Because only the creator can dictate what is right and what is wrong. The pursuit of self also blinds us. There is evidence of God all around us. Do you know what the problem is? It is impossible to see God when we are constantly just looking at ourselves. I don't know if there's any other book nerds in here. I have a degree in English. 
I have to use it every once in a while. I'm gonna do that for a second right now. One of my favorite authors from the 50s, 40s and 50s was, was Ray Bradbury. He was a science fiction writer, um, wrote Fahrenheit 451, if you're familiar with that, and actually wrote a couple of episodes for The Twilight Zone, which is kind of neat, my favorite show. But anyways, so Ray Bradbury in the late 1940s was asked by a science fiction magazine, they said, what do you think the future will like? What will technology be like? What will people be like in the future? And so he talked a lot about technology, about TVs that would take up whole walls, stuff like that, you know, stuff that was just way crazy talk. And then one of the things he said that I thought was extremely provocative is Ray Bradbury in the late 1940s said, I see people one day getting to a place to where they are sexually aroused by their own image. He said, I see people on trains and buses who don't talk to each other because they're looking at their own reflection in the window, attracted to their own reflection. And we go, that's nuts. And then four years ago when the word of the year was selfie. It is impossible to see God when we're obsessed at the image of our own selves. It is impossible to see God it is impossible to see the evidence of God, what God is doing around us. Also, and this also goes back to the interest of self, it's impossible to see God if we're constantly looking at what other people are doing. But that's also a selfish thing because we're looking at what they're doing because we wanna make sure that they look at us with approval. And this also prohibits us from seeing God. This, this pursuit of self makes us blind. And again, the pursuit of self, if you look back throughout history, if you wanna go home and do a history lesson, you, you can fact check me on this. Tell me one civilization that has stood the test of time. It has never happened. But Corey, we're Americans, we're gonna make it. We're already in that decline, brothers and sisters. You're, you're very close to becoming irrelevant on the, on the world stage. And if you get into the book of Revelation, find me the Western world in it, you won't. You wanna know why? Because I believe by that time we are irrelevant. The bottom line is this, you don't even need history to tell you that we can't fix our own problems. You can just look at the present day and age. And the bottom line is this, we consistently fail. Now that shouldn't turn you into a nihilist. That shouldn't depress you. You shouldn't wanna go out and buy all the works of Frederick Nietzsche and grow out a big mustache and be angry. Some philosophy nerds in here like that, didn't you? It shouldn't drive us all to do that. Understanding that we consistently fail should not like make us hopeless. It should just direct our hope to the proper place. And the proper direction of our hope is Christ. If we will humble ourselves and realize that we cannot do it on our own, Listen, you know where we all need to reach? We all need to reach a place of desperation, legitimate desperation, where we say, God, I am gonna blow this if you don't step in. Listen, and that doesn't mean that you're a terrible, awful, you know, broken human being. It just means that you realize that we are finite and he is infinite. And when we reach that place of desperation, God steps in and he heals and he restores and he fixes and he puts us on the right path. But until we reach that point of desperation, we will always be a confused people. We will always be a broken people. We will always be a limited and lost people. Society will always be chaos. You will always be chaos. Until we reach that place where we say, I need your help. So what does this mean for us today? What it means is this.
We have to, I should have highlighted the word intentionally. We have to intentionally on purpose look for God. We have to want to see the things of God. We have to have it, it has to be a priority in our life. It has to be a desire for us. Okay, so again, what does that mean, Corey? How do I do it? It means that we may need to block off some time in our calendars. And some people say, well, that sounds really legalistic and mechanical. I don't know if you're like this in this room. If it's on my calendar, it's set in stone. I'm doing it. And if it's on my calendar, it's a priority in my life. I have times in my calendar where it says, pick up daughters and take them out for ice cream. I do it every week with both of my girls. One one day, one the other day. It's a priority in my life to pick them up from school and go eat the most fattening ice cream that we can possibly get our hands on, Andy's, right? So that's what we do twice a week. It's a priority. So what we need to do is we need to make time with God a priority. One of the things we need to do is we need to make time to just be still. You know why we don't do that more often? And I'm, this is not to be mean. You know why we don't get still and quiet more often? Because I think a lot of us are afraid of what will pop into our heads. We're afraid of what we might find. We're afraid that we may not like the person that we are. And so we distract ourselves all the time so I don't have to think about the real things. But the Bible says, be still and know that he's God. We need to be quiet sometimes. We need to pray. It means you need to audibly talk to God. We need to listen. Some people say, well, I've never heard God speak to me. It's hard when you have an AirPod in this ear, YouTube on this phone, watching the news and someone talking to you simultaneously. It is hard to hear God. But if we will talk to God and then be silent, be quiet, we need to read the word of God. We need to intentionally think on good things. So many people wonder why they're angry and depressed and sad because we watch a lot of angry and depressing, sad things. Well, Corey, are you saying that what we watch matters? Let me quote Jesus again. Sorry about this again in church. Jesus said that what we take in through the eyes contaminates the entire soul. So when all we watch are things that are antithetical to Jesus, and then we wonder why we have thoughts and actions that are antithetical to Jesus, the answer is right here. What we take in through the eyes contaminates the entire soul. Jesus said that. We need to intentionally think on good things. We also need to intentionally be full of the Holy Spirit. That's not gonna happen by accident. And listen, if we're gonna be full of the Holy Spirit, it means we need to empty ourselves of all the other gods that may be residing in our heart. Any sin in our heart, any idols we have made, we need to get rid of, and then God can fill us with his spirit because God will not occupy the same space as another God. He will not share you with another God. So here's the bottom line. Is evil increasing in the world? <laughs> My God, yes. Is evil increasing? Absolutely. We praise it, we celebrate it. They are the heroes of our age. Is evil increasing? Absolutely. But I'm gonna tell you this, at the same time, righteousness in the kingdom of God is also increasing. God is working around us, not just in a macro level, God is working around you and me. But we have to have, as Jesus said in Revelations chapters one through three, we have to have eyes to see it. We have to have ears to hear it. We have to intentionally want to engage in that movement of God. It's happening. 
Sometimes people come in my office and they're just like, man, life is terrible, it's awful, everything's bad. And I'll interrupt and I'll say, well, how's your wife? Well, she's great, man, yeah, she's, she's awesome. Love her to death. How are your children? Man, they're healthy as a horse, they're great, doing well in school. I'm like, man, God has really blessed you. But what happens again is we let temporary things distract us from these greater movements that God is doing. God is doing something around you. The evidence is there. I guess the big question that all of us need to ask ourselves is, are we intentionally and purposefully looking for it? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you're on that journey, maybe you don't have all the answers you want yet, but you're looking, you're digging, really, really glad you're here. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Emily is up here. She does our assimilation, she does our hospitality. If you have any questions about church, about God, about Christ, any of those things, she may not have every single answer, but we'll do our best to help you out as much as we can. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything in your life, please let someone pray with you. The last thing is, all the way around this room, wherever there's a lamp on a table, and then on the majority of the pillars in the middle, there is bread and wine, communion. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That this same Jesus that we talked about today eventually gives himself over to the authorities and, and they kill him. He sheds his blood, gives up his body, and he does that for the forgiveness of our sins. All of us are welcome to take communion this morning if you have asked God to forgive you of those sins. Let me pray for you though. Father, I pray for all of us in this room. God, we live in such a busy, distracting, it can be a very depressing, aggressive time, Lord. I pray, God, that as we go back to our jobs, as we go back to the, to the rat race, God, as we get back to traffic and distractions and things happening on the world stage, maybe things, God, even happening within our own families, I pray, Father, that we could intentionally set aside time to get to know you better, to build that relationship with you. And Lord, to see that you are working around us, that you love us, that, you, that you're not distant. So Lord, our, our big prayer today is that we set aside ourselves and we pursue you, God, that we are desperate for you, Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you. Keep your hand on everyone in this room. Keep us safe until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.